And welcome to the Ashley Webster Experience alongside executive producer Brian Solomon, who was late, so we've knocked him down to assistant booker uh, for the show. But welcome. And a special guest today, as your demotion, special guest today, the one and only Judge Andrew Napolitano, who's been with us a couple of times now. We love having him. He's immensely popular. Well, the pleasure is mine as well, Ashley. Thank, Thank you, Judge. Even, even if Brian failed to meet me at the elevator. <laughs> To show me where this crazy studio is. Yes, hence the demotion. <laughs> um, okay, a couple of legal issues have come up that I really would be interested in your opinion. One that gets a lot of play and a lot of uh, emotions on both sides of the issue. But uh, the president has been calling again for voter ID. He said the one way to stamp out voter fraud is someone who has identification with a pho- photograph on it, that, that when you go to the voting booth, you show that there is no chance of any voter fraud. Now, Opponents to that say, wait a minute, you're just trying to put another hurdle in people who may not have government-issued photo ID, and they will be disenfranchised, ethnic groups and so on. And they say, we don't need it anyway, because the, the, the level of fraud that's being claimed by those who want photo IDs just doesn't exist. What are your thoughts? Uh, I haven't seen any evidence uh, of fraud, and I can't even think of a justification for requiring people to show a photo ID. I was a little mystified, though, given... The president's dependency for and penchant for exaggeration. I shouldn't have been when he said you need to show a photo ID to go to the supermarket. Well, you don't. You can pay for cash unless you're buying uh, at the, uh, at the booze, maybe, yeah, or they want to see like you under and you look like you're card. under twenty-one. Uh, yes. The idea of carrying government papers and showing them to engage in a fundamental liberty to me is a very, very dangerous, uh, slippery slope, and I don't want to see that. Uh, happen here. Uh, if fraud becomes a, a serious issue and, and they issue IDs, well, then the IDs will become fraudulent. I mean, this is just the, the bad point. guys will be one step ahead of the government. They always are. Mm-hmm. But fraud is is not an issue that I've seen evidence for. It exists in the president's mind. Where are those three million people that voted fraudulently? They haven't yeah. identified any of them. Although it is essentially on the trust system. It's amazing that often representatives from other countries come to the United States and they go to Washington and they talk about this, and they're absolutely amazed that essentially it's done on the trust basis. Yes. Um, and they couldn't even imagine doing that in their own country. Well, what about your home country? Do they UK? show an ID in order no, to vote? No. Just walk in. Northern you're Ireland, signing, funny enough, you need to have f- for you're, some You're quirk. signing a paper under oath representing who you are. Mm. So you commit a felony if you vote and don't have the right to vote. And the government does prosecute people yeah, for how, this. Do they have the resources to go after those people? Well, that's the government's choice. You know, so I, what's I, to stop, Judge, someone saying, okay, I'm, I'm here illegally, but it's election, and I want to vote for these candidates. I'm just going to show up and see if I can do it. Lo and behold, you can. Well, they would have to register. Mm-hmm. And in order to register to vote, you have to show proof of citizenship. So they would have to claim that they are someone else or at the time of registration have uh, false uh, citizenship documents, mm. which is sort of like a false registration card. So it's just not going to get us anywhere other than more government monitoring and more government control over people. So you think it's certainly not worth the while, not worth the effort, I'm, the I'm, cost? I'm making a non-racial argument against it. There right. are racial implications because typically minorities don't have the contact with the government that will get them this kind of ID or they're afraid to get the ID. Although I saw a stat the, the other ID. day that they say more whites overall do not have photo ID than minorities, which kind of knocks down that argument. Well, 
but but my argument is fear of a totalitarian monitoring uh, system, which has nothing to do with race. Yeah, it's interesting. And the president's going to, to, to knock away at this. Do you ever see I don't think he's going to get the first base. I mean, he uses it to gin up his base. But this is, you know, the, the, the voting in America is done by state. So this would have to be done and by some 50 sta- different states. And states state. have their own laws, correct? They do. They do. Some are a little on the heavy side, like Indiana. Texas. Texas, which keeps getting invalidated by the federal courts, and rightly so. There was an interesting uh Quote I picked up. It's an old one from 2005, so we're talking 13 years ago. But it was before Brian shaved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was in diapers probably. <laughs> Justice Alito. This was in a in an argument. Wrote that if voter fraud is not a problem at all, how do you account for the fact that the Commission of the Federal Election Reform recommended? A voter ID requirement. And many other countries around the world have voter ID requirements. That's Judge Alito in 2005. He is my... uh, And that was in an Indiana photo ID requirement case. Right. I know the case. He's my boyhood friend and college classmate, Sam Alito, Justice uh, Alito. So, and uh, he's on the Supreme Court, and I, I'm on Fox and Friends or Varney and Company. So, forgive me for uh, criticizing, right? So, for uh, for criticizing, uh, for criticizing him. Yeah, but he's quoting a government commission on whether or not we need government papers. What do you expect it to say? So it was bias, right? Of course, of course, they're always in favor of more government control. That's why they exist because they'd be in charge of this. Yeah. Well, you as a libertarian would always say no to something like this. Am I correct? I wouldn't say I would always say no, but I would be on the side of the individual against the state and force the state to prove its case to me. Uh, if the state can show massive fraud or enough fraud so it affected the mm-hmm. outcome and that there would be no fraud with the voter ID, well, then it would be worth uh, looking at. But you're just switching the fraud from people lying yeah. about voting to lying about the cards that they have in their mm-hmm. pockets. All right. We'll leave that there. It's interesting, though. I want to move on to another legal case. It's the NRA suing. It's a long-running battle, really, between the National Rifle Association and Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York. Uh, the NRA has been fi- filed suit basically saying that the defendant's conduct with regard to trying to what they believe is stifling the voice of the NRA uh, shocks the conscience, they say. Meanwhile, Co- Governor Cuomo says, um, if I could put the NRA out of business, I would have done it 20 years ago. It's kind of complicated. The case involves really an insurance program that's touted by the NRA, NRA yes. the, the Carry Guard insurance program, which they say basically provides defense for those people who lawfully discharge their weapon in their defense. Yes. Um, but it goes deeper than that. All right, so the state of New York... Uh, has because insurance is also regulated by the 50 states. Mm-hmm. The state of New York refuses to authorize that insurance in New York. And that is what the NRA's complaint is because without its ability to offer that insurance, fewer people will carry guns that are lawfully authorized to do so. I support the litigation, but I think they're, they're wide of the mark. I think their complaint should argue that he's interfering with interstate commerce. That is an area that the courts are very, very sensitive to. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's an easier case to prove yeah, because they than, claim- than the free speech case because they can say what they want. He's not gagging them. Right, but the the suit says that they're discouraging banks and insurers and others blacklisting. That basically. that is interfering with economic market activity, which the state of New York is not authorized to do under the Constitution. That, in my view, if they're listening, will be the easiest way to success in that lawsuit. 
It's interesting because, look, the the department says that the program, we're talking about that insurance program for the NRA, unlawfully provided liability insurance to gun gun owners for acts of intentional wrongdoing. I think that's stretching it because isn't it supposed to be for okay, people so it's against public who lawfully policy. defend themselves? Okay, it's against public policy to insure somebody for committing a criminal act. You can't get insurance right. for your, your crimes, but you can get insurance per, for, for performing a legal act that inadvertently harms someone. Which is what the NRA says. Correct, correct. That's where Governor Cuomo is wrong and the NRA is right. Now, the governor's argument is he will do anything he can to diminish the ability of people to keep and bear arms. Because I guess in his copy of the Constitution, there's a hole where the Second <laughs> Amendment should be. Just like in Judge Kavanaugh's copy like a, of the Constitution. About the size of a bullet. Yeah, yeah, there's a hole where the Fourth Amendment should be. <laughs> yeah, because it says, look, it goes on to say, from the outset, it's clear the investigation, this is regarding New York, was meant to advance Cuomo's political agenda by stifling the NRA's speech and retaliate, uh, t- retaliating against the NRA based on his viewpoint on gun control. It claims its constitutional rights have been violated through conspiracy and implicit okay, censorship. So, all right, so here's their First Amendment argument. I still think the interstate commerce argument is an easier one to prove mm. because it's demonstrable in dollars and cents. But their argument is punishment. We are being punished because he doesn't like our speech. Our right. speech encourages people to do what they can to keep and bear arms, and he hates that because he'd rather that we relied on the police to protect us, which we know they can't do. Is it lawful for a government leader, a governor, to take on an industry like this because they don't agree with them and use the state resources uh, to do that? Unfortunately, it is, thanks to a misguided opinion by my dear late friend, Justice Antonin Scalia, the government has First Amendment rights as well. Now, when the government takes you on, you lose because it has limitless resources. But that's crazy. If well, the government says, crazy. look, I hate oranges. I hate everything about them, and so I'm going to go after the orange industry. That's it doesn't def- matter what it is. That's the defect in that uh, Scalia opinion. Well, you know, the opinion uh, involves uh, license plates in uh, Texas okay. and whether right. the state can encourage you to put certain mottos on ah. those licenses. Mm. Well, Cuomo said on Facebook, he said um, – he said the regulations New York put in place are working, and we're forcing the NRA into financial jeopardy. We won't stop until we shut them down. Well, he's actually trying to destroy this corporation. This is grist for the mill for the NRA's lawyers. Yes. Yeah, the, government's, mm-hmm. the, the governor's arguments are very imprudent. He's a little like Trump. He'll say whatever he yeah. thinks yeah. without, without uh, calculating the consequences of his words. Do you think the NRA has a, has a legitimate yes. Uh, argument? Yes, they do. First Amendment, but again, the stronger one is interstate commerce. Mm-hmm. N- knowing the bias of judges in favor of stopping the states from interfering with commercial activity. I also wanted to ask you, Judge, kind of pulling back from this a little bit. I mean, this is an issue that's very divisive, but politics in general have become so either you're for it or you're against it. We see time and again uh, rallies in, in, in Berkeley, California, wherever, Portland, Oregon, where you have pro-Trump supporters – Far right, and then who are called fascists, and then you have the Antifa, the left hand, uh, the left leaning people who say anyone who, who supports Trump is a white supremacist and a Nazi. I don't think I've ever seen, I've been in this country 32 years now, I think. Uh, I've never seen a divide as broad as it is and as angry as it is. And, and, and have you seen this before? I don't. Well, I remember it this bitter in the late 60s yep. when the dispute was over the Vietnam War and you were either for the war or against it. So this is the tail end of the LBJ era and the beginning mm-hmm. of the Nixon era. But yeah. that was over a war. This seems to me 
be over Trump's personality so because ideology. he's so he's so pugnacious. He's so in your face that he's given license to the adversaries to be that uh, aggressive. And I can't stand it, to be honest Do you find it you. difficult in your personal life to talk politics with yes, people? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Almost everywhere I go that I'm recognized, do you think Trump's going to get reelected? What do you think about this? What do you yeah. think about that? Like, hey, you know what? I'm here to have dinner at a restaurant with my friends. <laughs> I'm not here to talk politics with a stranger. Do you, yeah. you obviously have friends on the other side of the argument. Uh, have you lost friends? No. No, I haven't Have relationships lost. become strained? Well, I, I mean, this is uh, public knowledge that yeah. I lost my professorship at Brooklyn Law School because of some pro-Trump statements I made on uh, Fox and Friends. It's really a disconnect there at law school that yeah. teaches freedom of speech, doesn't follow up on freedom of speech. But nevertheless, so you do I mean, how outraged sometimes were you suffer. At that time? How outraged were I was you? Out, I was extremely outraged. Did uh, you get any support within the college? From many of the students, yes, although it was done in the summertime, cagely, oh, so the students yeah, weren't around. Yeah. Sneaky was yeah, that. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. This happened a year and a half ago. Well, yeah, live with it. You are, you've been personally, uh, personal friends with the president. Yes. And, you know, is it sometimes hard when people come to you and either, you know, attack him based on his politics and you have to support? try to support or you know you defend him it is hard it is hard to factor the friendship in i mean in my heart of hearts i disagree with him more Mm. than i agree Mm. but i i want him to be successful he is the lawfully elected president of the united states i mean i condemn the bombing in syria i Mm. criticize the nomination of judge uh kavanaugh i absolutely condemn uh tariffs uh, I condemn the braggadocio style, but that's what the people elected. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what got him elected in the first place. Correct. Yeah. One of those strange, I say politicians, because he's not a politician, but he followed through, and everything he said on the campaign trail, yes. he's doing. Yes. And that's a hard Whether adjustment Whether you love him or hate him, he has done that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We knew his style. It's no it, It's not like this is a new guy we didn't know. Correct. Right? He's been Correct. like this since day one. Correct. The only thing he's changed on is he's now become a creature of the establishment he said he would hate. He's surrounded by neocon establishment people. Um, Mike Pompeo, uh, John Bolton, Bloody Gina. That's Gina Haspel, the mm-hmm. head of the, uh, of the CIA. So these are the kind of hawks that you, right, you believe. Right, right. And then he picks... As a nominee of the Supreme Court, a person quintessentially in the establishment, with the exception of college and law school, he's never lived or worked outside of Washington, D.C. So I I Did you tell him that personally? I did. Well, I I told him about Kavanaugh before he picked him. We haven't discussed Kavanaugh since he he chose him. Interesting. The president doesn't second-guess himself. If I called to speak to him about Kavanaugh today, he would change the subject. If, If I called to speak to him about Kavanaugh... And I don't mean to disrespect no, Judge Kavanaugh. Before he uh, was nominated, the president will be happy to hear my views, as he did. But isn't that a strength to hear many uh, different points of view before making a decision? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Even if you don't agree with it. Yes, it is. It is a strength. You know him well. They say that he likes chaos around him. He likes pitting people against people because ultimately the best ideas come out of that. Yes, Reminds me of our former boss here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that right here. Uh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Bro. I just want to ask one more thing. You know, you, you know, his whole thing is draining the swamp, but you don't think he's done that. Do you think, though, that draining the swamp doesn't have to be by getting people from 
outside D.C., but certain personalities who have already existed in D.C.? Or would you prefer to see people completely outside D.C.? I lauded Justice Gorsuch for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a Westerner. He's not a D.C. person. Mm -hmm. He believes in the primacy of the individual over the state, as do I. He believes that your rights are natural to your humanity. They don't come from the government, as do I. That's not an academic argument, Mm -hmm. because if they are natural to you, then the legislature can't take them away. So if my right to be left alone is a natural right, then they can't say in the Patriot Act or the USA Freedom Act, we can get inside your cell phone anytime we want. Mm -hmm. Only a court could do that if I waive my natural rights. Gorsuch is on the same page there. Justice uh, Kavanaugh is from the heart and soul of the Washington legal establishment, which is always in power no matter what party controls the Congress and what party controls the White House. The exact culture, culture, not human beings, culture, Mm -hmm. the president ran against. Mm -hmm. All right, listen, before we let you go, I wanted to to talk about your father, who um, unfortunately passed away recently um, at the age of 92. Yes. And you wrote a tremendous tribute to him that's very interesting and very, uh, it's, you know, um, very heartfelt. And a remarkable history of a remarkable man, let's be honest. Um, If you could, could you sum up for me your father where he came from, what he achieved, and really what influence he had on you. Well, he was a blue-collar diamond in the rough who was born in the Roaring Twenties in Newark, New Jersey, uh, who did not excel in academics in high school but was a super athlete. In fact, he was a super athlete until he was age 89 when he had to stop bowling three days a week and playing (laughs) golf four days a week. Wow. And he played competitive baseball, softball, and hardball well into his 50s. He was 55 or 56 when my mother made him uh, stop that. But he was uh, adamant about things like honesty, humility, self-reliance, yeah. uh, and teamwork, and he practiced what he uh, preached. Iron fist in a vel- velvet glove, yes, I think I did, said. I did use that phrase. He always forgave, always, no matter what my brothers and I did after the admonition or the punishment. He always hugged so you and forgave. you wanted three boys. Yes. My two brothers are younger. So I have a blue-collar brother, and I have a straight A's at Harvard brother. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> now, what's that, in the beginning of your tribute, you talk about when he was four years old, he, quote, met a curly-haired little girl in the neighborhood who was just three days older. My mother. And that was your mother. Right. Four years old. That's crazy. So I used to tease them. My mother <laughs> would weep if I mentioned this today. Yeah. You guys were friends for. 88 years yeah. and married for 70. Brian, these numbers are biblical. Would you be <laughs> married for 70 years? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Another interesting thing, Judge, was uh, at the age of 17, he completed Navy boot camp because uh, that was what you did in those mm-hmm. days. It's remarkable. When, it was 1943. When you think, 1943. And you say that he was boarding a submarine at a naval base in Rhode Island when he slipped broke his foot yes and he had and to that go was to a, a hospital moment. for two months which of course prevented him from uh, getting on the submarine the submarine never returned and was never found so the broken foot saved his life and brought me and my brothers into existence he, the, he, that must have weighed on him yeah. you know he did not like telling that story yeah. why I don't know why, but I used that story in his eulogy at his funeral mass uh-huh. and two-thirds of my family came up to me, not my brothers, of course, or their wives, or my mother, came up to me and said, we never heard it, we never heard it, we never heard it. I think he was modest that this was providential, that God wanted him to live. He didn't want to boast about that. Mm -hmm. He was modest about his fidelity to Catholicism 
and belief in God. But there's one piece in this tribute, Judge, that really struck me because this is where I know where you're coming from and where you got it from. It says, you say about your father, though he loved the Navy and respected the police, he was skeptical of government in general, and he loved Jefferson's mantra, the quote, that government is best which governs least, unquote. Yes, he did love that. Of course, that was not the rule in his household because he governed with an iron fist. But... In the government at large, he wanted less government. Obviously, I got that from him, and then my reading became more sophisticated than my father's dinnertime lectures. He <laughs> must have been enormously proud of all, all of his boys, yeah. but, but you know, you in particular and, and your accomplishments, um, did he ever tell you that? Yes, he did. Uh, I spent a lot of time with him at the end when he was in a rehab facility, mm-hmm. and sometimes I would show up unannounced at 7 in the morning or at 7 at night when there were no other visitors there. So we did have a lot of uh, personal, touching uh, conversations. That's such valuable time. So I'll tell you uh, a story. When I was teaching at Auburn University, uh, I had committed to give 12 lectures to economics PhD students, and I was lecturing on the four parts of the Constitution that the courts have allowed the Congress to use to regulate the economy. And I had given eight of the 12 lectures. And at 7.20 in the morning, my mother called and said, the nurses are saying this is going to be his last day. you got to get home. Of course, it took me 10 hours to get home. Right. It's a two-hour drive to the Atlanta airport, waiting for the flight, flying to Newark, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But after my mother called, I called his cardiologist. cardiologist said, I believe that today is the last day, but don't worry. He's not going to go until you get here. And I said, well, how do you know that? He said, Judge, all my patients die. The only patients I have are the most extreme cardiac cases. I know death. And I know there's a circle that's not complete around his bedside, and it's you. Wow. So I got there at 7 o'clock at night, and five hours and 15 minutes later, he went to heaven. Passed away. And we should mention your mother. It must be tremendously She's a great hard, lady, but, uh, great lady. How's she's she suffering. She's she suffering. You know, she doesn't even know a life right. of loneliness. Right. Yeah. So my brothers and sisters-in-law and I spend you as much time with her rallying as around. we can. But a typical Italian grandmother, great grandmother. Yeah. Ma, can I take you out to dinner? What? My food's not good enough for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you cook me dinner? Yes. It's yes. all ready for you. Okay. All right. All right. I'll, I'll be over for dinner. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> and that's where we should leave it right there. That's terrific. Judge Andrew Napolitano, as always, thank you so much for Pleasure, being here. Guys. Thank you. I'm Ashley Webster alongside the assistant booker for the show. He may get promoted <laughs> next AKA time. A.K.A. executive away. producer. Yeah, A.K.A. executive you. producer, Brian <laughs> Solomon. Thank you all for joining this podcast. We'll see you here next time.